So Exodus chapter 3, reading from verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals, uh, sorry, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the people, the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel um, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together to say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and you shall plunder the Egyptians." Well, good morning again. Um, as, uh, good morning, John. Um, as uh, Duncan mentioned, we're going to be looking together at that chapter over the next few minutes, Exodus chapter 3. And it would be helpful if you could have that open in front of you um, as we do so. Um, be- before we do that, though, I'm going to, to pray and to ask for God's help. Let's pray together. 
Our God and Father, we ask now that you would please speak to us through your word. Ask, Lord, that you would please help me to remain faithful to you and to what you've told us about who you are. Let me please to be clear in all that I say. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please be at work to apply the truths of Exodus 3 to each of our lives and hearts. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I wonder what you imagine God to be like. What do you imagine that God is like? Statistics would suggest uh, that we are trending, in the West at least, away from the Christian faith, at least from where things might have been um, over the past hundred or so years prior. But even though that's the case, a lot of people do still have a sense that there is some kind of higher power out there. And they'll often have a stab at, at working out what that higher power might be like. So you'll often hear people say things like, I like to think that God is dot, dot, dot. Or for me, my God is like X, Y, or Z. And even if you're a Christian, someone who claims to follow this God, I wonder how you would answer this kind of question. If a friend were to ask you, for example, what your God is like, what is the God you worship like, I wonder what you would say. The natural world around us might give you a bit of a steer on how to answer. I guess you might say something about him being the creator, being powerful and in control of all things. The Bible would give you even more material to help you answer that question. You might use words like love, like grace, like truth to describe your God, all of which would be absolutely right. But I wonder how many of us, whether you would describe yourself as being a Christian or not, I wonder how many of us would describe the kind of God we meet in Exodus chapter 3. We're in week two in this series in the book of Exodus. We saw last week, if you were here, that God's people are in a real quandary. They're living in Egypt and they're living as slaves under a fairly brutal set of masters, masters who are going out of their way to make life painful. But you might also remember, if you were here last week, that I said that the whole book of Exodus, it isn't mainly about the people of Israel. It isn't even mainly about the big events, although there are plenty of them as we read through the book. No, the book of Exodus is all about God. It's about God revealing himself to people, showing them what he's like. And that might not have been all that apparent last week, because in chapters 1 and 2, God didn't really take center stage. The focus seemed to be on Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, on the Israelites, God's people, on Moses, who sort of straddled those two worlds. And yet, whilst he was in, in, in the background last week, well, this week, God really is the main attraction. We're on what might feel like quite familiar ground for some of us, I guess, in Exodus chapter 3. It tells us the story of the burning bush. And because it's familiar, whether because we heard about it in RE lessons at school, or we read about it in a story Bible when we were little, well, it might feel quite safe. But as we're going to see over the next few minutes, the God of Exodus 3 is anything but safe. He isn't perhaps as we would imagine him to be. No, he is self-defining. 
He is self-existing. He is perfectly holy, inapproachably so. See, in one sense, the God of Exodus 3 is completely other than you and me. And that means that our view of, of who God is, how we would go about answering that question when asked, what is God like, it's going to be expanded this morning, like someone blowing up a balloon. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's one of the key objectives, the key applications of Exodus chapter 3, that we would have a grander view of who God really is. And we're going to think about that, actually, under our first heading this morning, which is that God is completely other than us. Now, as a brief recap, we, we saw last week that Moses had been a prince. He was raised in the royal palace of Egypt, but after killing an Egyptian slave master, he effectively had to run away from Egypt as a fugitive. So by the end of chapter two, he'd moved to a place called Midian, where he met and he married a woman called Zipporah. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that 40 years then passed between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter 3. And so as we begin chapter 3, Moses is no longer the prince of Egypt in his prime, as he once was. No, he is instead, chapter 3, verse 1, an 80-year-old shepherd. And as Moses is, is, is going about his business, do all, doing all kinds of, of shepherd stuff in the wilderness, he sees something strange. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses sees a bush that's on fire, but that isn't burning up. And that isn't the kind of thing you see every day, and so he stops to have a look, at which point things go from strange to stranger. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. It is an extraordinary moment that the burning bush isn't a natural phenomenon. God is making himself present with this octogenarian shepherd, Moses. But God making himself present like that, it seems, is in one sense quite, well, quite uncomfortable. Read with me from verse 5. God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So God comes and makes himself present with Moses, and yet he tells Moses that he isn't fit to stand before him in his current state because he's standing, says God, on holy ground. Ground that is holy because God is there. And so Moses takes his sandals off. And as we read on a verse or two, we see that it isn't just God who thinks that Moses isn't in a fit state to come before him. Verse 6, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Meeting God in person, if that's the right way to put it, in person like this is distinctly uncomfortable for Moses. Why? Well, because this God, we're being told, is inapproachably holy. 
Now, what do I mean when I use a word like holy? It's a word that Christians bandy around, I guess, a fair bit. What does it mean? Well, for someone or something, I guess, to be holy, it means that it is set apart. It is other. It is different from us. And in this instance, it's different from us in its absolute perfection. It is morally and spiritually perfect. That's what this God is like. He is set apart. He is different from everyone and everything else. And he is so other, in fact, so perfect that someone like Moses, someone who is not like that, can't even look at him, isn't fit to stand near him. Now, it's just worth noting that what happens to Moses is quite specific to Moses. I remember a friend of mine telling me that he was once at a Christian event. People were, were, were getting quite enthusiastic during the singing time. And the person who was leading the music and the singing told everyone in the room to take their shoes off. Because the ground where they were standing, they said, was holy ground. My friend, who incidentally is now a minister, was young. It was a bit contrarian at the time and responded by tying his shoelaces in a double knot and leaving the room. You might have experienced something similar to that before, not the shoelaces part, I hope, but, but hearing people speaking about Moses' experience as though it's something that, that we might experience today, that we too are standing on holy ground during a particularly powerful worship service, for example. I can understand people's desire for that kind of experience. What Moses saw must have been electrifying. But Moses' experience was a very specific one. He's being prepared, we'll see next week in chapter 4, for a very particular task. All of which is a long way of saying, you can all keep your shoes on this morning. But, whilst we might not experience the same holy ground as Moses did, we are each called to relate to the same holy God as Moses was. See, this is how the God of the Bible is described for us. Not just in Exodus chapter 3, but right throughout the Bible. As one who is absolutely holy. Who is completely set apart from us. Who is morally and spiritually perfect. And one who is in one sense inapproachable to people like you and me. And that does cut against the grain when it comes to our culture, I think, and increasingly so, actually. We're a culture for whom nothing and no one is ever out of bounds anymore. It just have a think, for example, about how public leaders are treated in our culture. It isn't at all unusual to see images of political leaders or, or, or public figures meeting with members of the public. And what's the first thing the member of the public does? They get their phone out for a selfie. Now, obviously, the the public figure has a security detail standing by to make sure nothing untoward happens. But still, uh, mid-20th century, there's no chance that kind of proximity would be possible. Never before have figures of authority been more accessible than they are now. And that, in one sense, can be a good thing. It can lead to a growing accountability, for example, people no longer being able to avoid scrutiny. But one byproduct is that people in our culture, we aren't being used to being told no, to being told get back, to the idea that someone might be out of bounds for us. And yet that is just the sense of what we're being told about this God, that he isn't our mate. He isn't someone we can treat flippantly or lightly. He is completely and perfectly holy, different, other than us, inapproachably so. 
And that isn't the only thing that should give us pause in Exodus chapter 3, because as well as being inapproachably holy, this God is also completely self-existent. What do I mean? Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the story of the burning bush might well be quite familiar to some of us. And it's familiar, I guess, partly because it's quite strange. That's why all the children's storybook Bibles contain the story, because it's, it's quite weird and it stands out and children remember it. That out of nowhere, a shrub should catch fire and just keep building, uh, keep burning rather, because shrubs and trees and bushes, they tend not to burn like that. If the wood's too green, well, it doesn't burn at all. It just peters out. And if the wood's dry enough to catch light, then it tends just to burn itself up until there's no wood left. But in this instance, the bush burns, and it's on fire, and it's somehow sustaining itself without swallowing the bush. It is miraculous. And that's a bit of a clue as to what we're going to learn about God himself. So we read on through the chapter, we see this exchange about God's perfect holiness in verses 5 and 6. And we then hear about God's plans for Moses to use him as a messenger, verses 7 to 12. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But after setting out his plan, Moses then asks God what might appear to be a slightly strange question. Read that with me, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So when people ask me what you're called, what am I meant to tell them, says Moses. And that is a strange question, because Moses already knows who he's dealing with. And we know he already knows who he's dealing with, because he asks it in the question. He says, the God of our fathers, in the question itself. So he knows in one sense who he's dealing with. Why does he ask his name? Well, the idea isn't that Moses has forgotten God's name. And the idea isn't even that he's asking for a name in itself, in fact. Because we've already seen in the book of Exodus that there is much in a name. See, in our culture, people often choose baby names because they quite like the word or or because they know someone else with that name and so they kind of pay tribute to to the great auntie by naming the baby after her, for example. But in Moses' day, a name meant something. The word had a meaning in and of itself. And and we know that from just chapter 2. Moses was named Moses because that word means drawn out. We're told in Exodus chapter 2. Why? Well, because Moses was drawn up out of the water. He was rescued from the water as a baby. Moses' daughter, we're told at the end of chapter 2, was named Gershom. Not because Moses had a great auntie Gershom, nor because Moses liked the name, but because Gershom, we're told, end of chapter 2, means sojourner. It means temporary resident. And that's what Moses had been when the baby was born. You see, names aren't just words in Moses' mind. They mean something. They tell you something about a person. And so what Moses is asking is to know more about this God. All of which makes the answer he receives even more surprising. Read with me from verse 14. God said to Moses... I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Who are you? Asks Moses. I am, says God. Now that sounds like quite an enigmatic thing to say. Perhaps as as, as though God's evading the question or he's misheard the question. But he really isn't. He's answering it head on. 
I'm occasionally asked to go and speak at events elsewhere, often Christian unions or, or in other churches or, or youth events and that kind of thing. And if I'm speaking somewhere that I haven't been before, it isn't uncommon for the person who's leading the service or the event to briefly interview me before I come to speak so that people know who I am. Sometimes those questions are fairly generic. You know, what's your name and where are you from and that kind of thing. Sometimes they really aren't very generic. I've been asked questions like, what is your most embarrassing moment? Or uh, if you were a biscuit, what kind of biscuit would you be? And those are quite interesting questions to answer in a room full of people you've never met before and to answer on the hoof. Uh, Not very easy. But quite often the person leading the service doesn't interview me at all, really. They just ask me, introduce yourself. And so I've got 30 seconds to, to sum up all of who I am to a room of people I've never met before. I'm a pastor of a church family in Aberdeen, I might say. So I I teach the Bible for a living. Or or I'm married to Fiona. We have three children together. Or in my spare time, I like to exercise and to drink pretentious coffee. Uh, But you see, when I try and define myself, when I have to introduce myself like that, I'm always forced to reach for things outside of me. I reach for the work I do. I reach for the people I love. And that isn't just something exclusive to me. One of the things we often ask people when we meet them for the first time, isn't it, is, what do you do? That's how we get to know them, is hearing what they do. But you see, in Exodus chapter 3, God's saying that he isn't quite like that. He isn't first and foremost defined by stuff out there, by people out there even by what he does in and of itself. Of course, that tells us about who he is, but it isn't who he is because he just is. He always has been and he always will be. He is, in that sense, completely independent, self-existent, self-defining. Who are you, asks Moses, I am. And I wonder if that might shift the needle in how we tend to think of God. When I asked you earlier, perhaps, what you imagine God to be like, we use phrases like, I imagine God to be, or, or, or the God I believe in would never. And very often, how we finish those sentences is by imagining God to be an awful lot like us. You might have heard it said before that God created human beings in his own image, and then human beings returned the favor. We imagine a God who is just like us. Now, it is worth saying that God himself does use categories to help us understand, to get our heads around who he is. So he describes himself elsewhere in the Bible as father. That's a relational description. But that doesn't mean that God himself depends on us for his being, for his value, for his importance, for his definition, for his existence. He just is. And I wonder if you can see how those two characteristics of God, his, his perfect holiness, his otherness, and his absolute self-existence, well, they do shape the way we ought to think of God, of how we ought to relate to him. Let me put it very bluntly. If you're someone who thinks or says, I could never believe in a God who would do X or Y or Z, in one sense, that doesn't matter one jot It doesn't make a difference to whether God is actually like that or not. Because you and I don't get to define him. He is self-existent. 
He is morally, spiritually perfect, inapproachably different from us. To put it in short, he is far, far, far bigger than we give him credit for. And that is just wonderful news. It really is good news that God's godness, if you like, it doesn't ebb and flow depending on what we think about him from day to day. He isn't more God one day because I believe in him to be God than the next day when I don't. Or or he doesn't change in his godness depending on what a particular culture thinks about him from generation to generation. He wasn't more God in the mid-20th century when more people went to church than he is now, today. Because he just is. Always has been. Always will be. But whilst that is good news... Well, it does also leave us with a bit of a problem. And we're given a sense of that when God reveals himself in the burning bush and tells Moses, take your shoes off. Because God's otherness, his perfection, it shines a spotlight on the fact that we just aren't like that. That we are deeply unholy, imperfect. And Moses himself feels that acutely as he stands before this God. Verse 6, he has to hide his face. The fact that this God is inapproachable means, to put it very simply, we can't approach him. Now, some of us might need to be convinced of that this morning, that there is this sort of gap between us and God, that he really is so different, so other from us, because the God we've imagined in our head is actually quite tame. He's he's pocket-sized. He's basically a slightly bigger, better version of me. Others of us might have no problem at all believing that there is a gap between us and God, the fact that he's perfect and we most definitely aren't. Only we might think that we, we can kind of solve that problem ourselves if we just live a bit better, if we're just slightly more moral, if we're just a bit kinder to people. The Bible says that that just is not good enough, never can be, never will be. The sense we're given of the God of Exodus 3 is that we cannot make ourselves holy enough to come before this perfectly holy God. And that's why it's good news that God's otherness, his difference from us, it isn't the whole story in Exodus 3. And we see that under our final heading this morning. But even so, he sees and he saves his people. Now, some of you might have seen this image before. It's a picture of John F. Kennedy, the then U.S. president, working at his desk in the Oval Office in the White House. And you might be able to see, it's a black and white picture, it's a little bit grainy, but you might be able to see just beneath the desk there, there's a whole cut out of it. And uh, his son, John Jr., is just playing, just playing with his toys underneath his dad's desk. And it is quite a famous image. And it's a famous image mainly, I think, because of the sharp contrast Because you see, JFK is still very clearly the president in this picture, isn't he? He's at his desk in the Oval Office. He's doing serious and important work. And yet at the same time as being uniquely important in who he was, well, he hasn't removed himself from his son, his little boy, as we might expect him to do. Now, given what we've already thought about when it comes to God this morning and to what he's like, Well, we might reasonably expect that this kind of figure, this inapproachable figure, ought to be quite distant from us. Even more distant than a president like JFK. That he might think of people like us as being insignificant, not worth his time. But that couldn't be further from the truth in Exodus chapter 3. And to see that, just notice the doing words that God uses of himself 
Read with me from verse 7, if you would. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, in case we miss that or you think I'm making too fine a point of it, we read the same idea again in verse 9. My people's cry has come to me and I'll bring them out of Egypt. And then again, verse 16 and following, tell the elders of my people I've heard their cries and I have come to rescue them. You see, the God who is out there, who is inapproachably holy, who is self-defining, he has made it his business to come near, to hear, to see, to know, and to save his people. Now again, we can't draw a straight line between the Israelites' experience and ours, that God hears us and will always save us from every difficulty we face in life. He hasn't made that promise to always rescue us from every possible problem we have. We can at least say, though, that God isn't ambivalent to us in those difficulties, that the fact he is inapproachably holy and he's, and he's different from us, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And we can also say that while he won't remove every difficulty we face here and now, well, the rescue that God is promising to bring about for his people in Exodus 3, that's a picture of an ultimate rescue that he has brought about for his people if we are Christians. Now, I'm aware that might well be a familiar idea to some of us this morning. But even if it is, I just want you to, to pause and put those two ideas together for a moment. God's absolute inapproachability, his moral and spiritual perfection, his self-definition, his self-existence, his eternality. Put that together with our moral and spiritual imperfection, our weakness, our limitation. You see, by rights, he should not be interested in us. He shouldn't care what happens to us. But he has. He has heard our cries, our pleas for help, for rescue from what we deserve. And he has answered decisively in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not by accident that Jesus describes himself as being, I am. That's what he describes himself as being in John's gospel. I am. He is this God. And in fact, that makes the means of his rescue of us all the more amazing. That I am, the inapproachably holy, self-existent God, came down, all the way down, to a cross, to rescue people who are not holy, who are anything but, to make it possible for us to approach him now and into eternity. It is genuinely mind-blowing if you give thought to it. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian, I do wonder what you make of all of that. Firstly, of the idea that you can't come before the God of the universe as things stand because he is perfect and you're not. Now, you might still be struggling to see the problem because, of course, you know you're not perfect, but you're not half as bad as some other people out there. Or again, maybe you can see the problem, but you think you've got it covered yourself. You just need to work a bit harder to be a better person. Then things between you and God will be fine. God himself begs to differ. 
we cannot come near him as we are. And that is why those words are absolute dynamite. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. What do you imagine God to be like was the question we began with this morning. Listen, you don't need to imagine. He's shown us what he's like. This is what he is like. He is far bigger and grander and more wonderful than you can ever wrap your mind around. And yet he loves you enough to come down for you. And I don't just want you to take my word for that. This is a consistent theme throughout the whole Bible, not just Exodus chapter 3. And so I'd love you to consider the claims of the Christian faith yourself. You can do that by reading one of the accounts of Jesus' life. We would love to help you do that. If you'd like help and someone to read it with you, perhaps please speak to me after the service if that's the case. Or maybe you could come along to the course we're running. It was announced earlier on, the second session of Hope Explored. Um, You'd be really welcome to join us for the second and third sessions, even if you haven't come to the first one. It's a chance to explore, to think more about this God in some detail and to ask questions about him. Please do come along if you can on Tuesday at half past seven here in the church building. But perhaps you are a Christian this morning and wondering what on earth you ought to do with any of that. Well, a key application of Exodus 3, as I said, is to expand our minds as to who this God is. And the result of that is worship. That's how God's people respond when they hear about him in chapter 4. We're going to think about this in more detail next week. But if you would, just humor me for one moment and check the last verse of chapter 4. If you have a Bible open in front of you, read Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. And when God's people heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. See, the news that this God should draw near to them, it brings his people to their knees. And so it should do for us too. Listen, God doesn't need you in the sense that he is not defined by you. He's not defined by his relationship with you. He is completely other. And yet the message of the Bible is that you can draw near. You can know this God because he hasn't remained distant as he ought. He has heard you. He has seen you. He's come down to rescue you. And you know that he has because of the cross of Jesus. And so if you do nothing else this morning, then come before him, approach this inapproachable God through Jesus and worship him. Let me lead us as we do that together in prayer now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you as a God who is who always has been, who always will be, that you are self-existing, self-sustaining, self-defining. You are perfectly holy and good and other. And we acknowledge before you this morning that, that we are not, that we are unholy, that we are are limited creatures, that we are dependent creatures, depending on you ultimately for every breath in our lungs. 
And so it is that we thank you that you have come down in the person of Jesus Christ all the way down to a cross and have done so in order that if we might trust in you, we could come near, we could approach you and know you. Help us each to rejoice in that this morning and to worship you as a result. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.